Let's turn to the book of James, second chapter. James is uh, one of those books that assumes you've done your homework already. It assumes more theology than it teaches us. It assumes that you have read the the, uh, writings of Paul and wants to move us from the, we'll call it the philosophical understanding of salvation by grace, of faith, of the wonderful work of justification in our lives and move us into the practical application of that salvation. Okay? Now, Martin Luther was not all that in, enamored uh, with the book of James. He called it the straw epistle and wanted to get rid of it. I don't like this. Let's get rid of it. Okay? Let's just rip those pages out of the scripture. Uh, he, he didn't like it because he didn't think it was a... It matched well with the teachings of Paul. Now, it matches fine if you've read the teachings of Paul because you understand that James says to us in his writings, it's not enough just to believe. Because if you truly believe, then it will be demonstrated in your life. A real faith is played out in real living, in real deeds. Uh, right belief will be followed by right action. So James chapter 2, um, I'm going to start in verse 14. If you're able, let's stand before, um, as we read the word of God. <clears throat> Lord, come upon us as we read your word. Open our eyes through the power of your spirit that we might understand how it is we are to live this great salvation that has been placed in our hearts. Lord, that it would not simply be enough to be sayers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word, doers for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in verse 14, and I'm just going to read the rest of the chapter. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. There are no heretical demons. Okay, Every demon believes in the virgin birth. Every demon believes in the bodily resurrection of Christ. And they shudder. But they don't have saving faith. Verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. 
You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is the inspired word of God for us today. So please be seated. As I said, we run into a little uh, issue between Paul and James and the importance of understanding Paul and how he plays out for us and how he lays out for us salvation which is by grace alone through faith alone it is justification that is the work of God and then James's application of that now let's review a little bit and, and kind of compare and contrast the distinctions when it comes to justification Paul is using the term to mean to give a new dynamic relation to changing our status before God that is Paul's use of the word of justification James uses the term meaning a verdict based on the facts. Okay, Two different applications here. Paul talks about new life. James talks about what you do with this new life. Paul's fighting those people who want salvation to be only by works. And James is fighting those people who want a salvation that doesn't demand anything from us. Paul is saying salvation is only by grace. James says that salvation comes by grace and it produces Good works. There's no debate. It's not a doctrinal disagreement between Paul and James. They're both under attack from distinct groups. And Paul is defending himself against those who want a very legalistic salvation. And James is defending himself against those who don't want any strings attached to salvation. Who don't want anything else. I have been saved and it is great. Now I don't have to do anything else in my life. Because God has done all the work. My life doesn't have to be any different than it was before I came to Christ. That is what James is addressing. Now let's look at the background so we get a good idea of what's going on here. If you flip over one page to the first verse of chapter 1, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. So he's writing to a Jewish audience. And you can imagine the type of audience that he is writing to. These people had been raised all their lives to understand that to please God, you had to do certain things. Your life had to be ordered in a certain way. And there were, there were things you had to follow from the Old Testament. But as time went on, the priests and the scribes added more and more to these things so that it became so... Uh, so cumbersome that you had to be careful about everything that you did. And I used this, uh, this illustration before, so you'll remember it. Uh, a professor of mine lived next door, while he was at school, lived next door to an Orthodox, uh, a Jewish Orthodox individual. And they never wore, they always wore loafers. Here, there you go. You're like Nikita Khrushchev, and I'll beat my shoe. They always wore loafers on the Sabbath. Why wearing loafers on the Sabbath? So they wouldn't have to tie their shoes. Why? Is tying the shoe work? Well, if you go back and apply certain things from the building of the tabernacle, they had um, things that were tied in the tabernacle, and man had so convoluted the teachings that they applied it that you couldn't tie your shoe because that would be considered work. 
He also couldn't turn a light off and on. He also couldn't flush his toilet. So whenever he went to the bathroom, he banged on the wall, and my professor would come next door and do that work for him. Why did he not do these things? So that he could be right with God. So that God would be impressed with his works. Now, James is addressing people who are like this. They've known this do and don't all their lives. And along comes Jesus Christ. And he tells them about grace. And he tells them about the wonderful work and love that God has for them. And these people, you know, maybe they've gone to the other extreme. Maybe they've gone to the place where it was like, you know what? God's done the work. I don't have to do anything. And this is, this is uh, some sort of, of, of license, of, of liberty, where I can just go and live how I want because my eternal security has been secured through the work of Christ. And this is, they've kind of swung the pendulum all the way over to the other side. And this is what James is dealing with about people who don't think they have to do anything that, that, now that they've been saved. Okay? And he's calling that. Those who view salvation in that fashion, he says, that's not real faith. That's dead faith. Dead faith. Let's look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Verse 20. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. It is a dead faith. And then verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. It's all talk. It's no action. People with dead faith always substitute words for deeds. They can talk a good game about what it is they believe, but there's no demonstration of that belief in their lives. They want you to believe that they are what they say. And we have to understand that we are what we do. Real faith in our lives will drive us to do the things of Christ. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of the Father. Those who do the will of the Father. Not the sayers, it's the doers as well. Let's turn to John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8. I'm going to take you to three or four places today. Here is an illustration of this kind of faith that we're uh, we're addressing here in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse uh, 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. That is, if you continue to live in my word, if you continue to obey my teaching, then you are real disciples, you are truly disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In other words, they said they believed, and Jesus said, your belief must be demonstrated in the fulfillment of what it is that you do. Valid, saving faith is always verified by fruit. Valid, saving faith is always verified by fruit. Dead faith indicate, is indicated by no fruit. Okay? A dead faith is indicated by 
no fruit. People who believe the facts of the gospel are one thing. They make no commitment that their lives would be changed. I, I agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe in God, but it doesn't affect their lives. It is not demonstrated in anything that happens in their lives. Flip back to James. If you kept your finger there. Chapter 1. Throughout James, he brings up several tests. Tests to see if your faith is real. And chapter 1, verse 22, is really the first of these tests. James chapter 1, verse 22, Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Ooh, delude themselves. Oh, I've heard the word. I believe the word. And you're so convinced that Christ has died for you and that he has wiped away your sin You've deluded yourself to the fact that your life doesn't actually have to change. Because you had an experience in your life, and, and that's wonderful, and, and you, you are convinced that Christ has saved you, but it sh- does not manifest itself in what you do. Now, that's a problem. Valid faith, real fruit. They go together. Valid faith and real fruit. Now, perhaps... Perhaps you have friends like I did, who professed faith at one time and, and seemed to really believe, but they've lived for so long without any fruit. They don't have any demonstration or no manifestation of what God has done in their hearts. And they don't think that their lives need to for any, any further demonstration. It is a profession of faith, and that is enough for them. Or perhaps they have gone the complete opposite and said, yes, I profess faith, but now... They're not even sure that they believe that. James talks about a dead faith, and there are two items we need to look at in a dead faith. First of all, dead faith is identified by an empty confession, an empty confession. Chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, or what profit is it, my brethren, Okay, what good is such a claim from anyone if they don't have the righteous deeds to back up what they say? They don't have the righteous works that come from a heart that has truly been changed by the work of Christ. Well, what good is that faith? Well, the answer is no, it's no good at all. If when true faith is placed in Christ, we receive a new nature, that new nature will drive us to the things, to do the things that that new nature calls us to do. We will do the things of Christ. We will show the fruit of the Spirit. And what kind of things are we talking about in the fruit of the Spirit? We might understand good, good works to be an eager hearing of the Lord. We might assume a purity of life, putting away filthiness in our lives. Um, purity. We might assume uh, obedience to the things of Scripture. These are the types of fruit that we're talking about, that these things must be evidenced in our lives if we have made a true profession. They will be manifest in our lives if we have made a true profession. We could also look in James and see that um, control of the tongue is one of those issues. Oh, that's a tough one. And James goes on to talk about that. The tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It's very small, but it controls the whole ship. You know, how many times have you said something and and, and wanted to get it back, but it was too late? 
Okay, if you can control your tongue, then you can demonstrate control over the rest of your body. We might look into chapter 4 of James and see that humility is a manifestation of a new nature in Christ. Romans chapter 2 talks about that he will render every man according to his deeds. And when you say, well, Rand, I thought that uh, the final judgment is it's faith. Well, the final judgment will be on faith, faith as indicated in our what? In our deeds, in what we do. Okay, you can profess everything that you want, but if it isn't demonstrated in your life, the question is, is it real? Is it real if it's not demonstrated? Paul goes on to say, to the people who through patient continuous continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality to come in eternal life. In other words, it isn't that you're saved by those works. It is that those works manifest that you have been saved, that you have been saved. Turn over to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, 1594 if you're in a pew Bible. Acts chapter 19, verses 18 and 19. The gospel comes to Ephesus here. And it's the preaching, and it's simply the presentation of the gospel. And this is what happens. You can read the whole the whole chapter uh, from from verse 1 on, and you see that there are these changes that are taking place. I just want to focus on this one. Verse 18, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, these were magicians. These would be the sorcerers. These were the people who were the, uh, how do I want to say, the, the div, divinators, okay? Uh, they would look at the things and try to be able to tell the future. They would do these things that were the works of Satan. And along comes the gospel of Christ, and what do they do? They immediately recognize that what they were doing were, was not of Christ. So they took all of these valuable books, and they cast them into the fire. Now, I had a, uh, a professor once tell me, Uh, And he loved jazz growing up. He had this large collection of jazz albums. And when he became a Christian, he was in a very, um, he was uh, Scottish in in a very um, strict Scottish church. And uh, the pastor came to him and said, son, what do you think you have to do now with all those albums? And and he he said, I don't know. He said it in that great Scottish accent. This is awful. I don't know, whatever. And he said, you've got to burn them. We're going to have a fire tonight. Bring all those albums and we're going to burn them. Okay? They're the things of the world. They're the things of Satan. And he was, he was confused. He said, well, yeah, I have this new nature. Should I burn all my jazz albums? Well, he did it. And, and years, he said, I, I never felt right about it uh, because they weren't necessarily of Satan. They weren't books of magic. But that was the culture that he was in. Now, how many of us have done something like that? We came to Christ, and we said, I've got to just destroy this aspect of my life. Well, when I became a Christian 15, you know, the Lord destroyed a certain aspect of my life. He got rid of all the friends that I used to do all those sinful things with. 
They didn't want to have anything to do with me after I became a Christian. So that was good. Okay, that was good. But the question here, here is, what can we expect from a new believer? Can we expect immediate maturity? Can we expect an immediate depth of theological understanding to know how they should live out their Christian life? Well, no, we really can't. But if, if you've been a Christian for an extended period of time and you're still involved in the sinful habits that you were involved in before you became a Christian, if the things of Christ are not being manifest in your life, you've got a real problem. You better have a reality check on, is your faith real? Because if you're still involved in those things, I mean, you might be battling against them and saying, I know they're sinful, but I'm I'm working on it. That's one thing. But if you're still involved in those things and go, oh, it doesn't really bother me, you've got a problem. You've got a real problem. Second thing, James says dead faith is not marked only by words without deeds, but it is also marked by a false compassion, by false compassion. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. And this is the absence of deeds. False compassion is the absence of deeds. James says, you see somebody who's naked without food, and what do you say? Ah, go and be filled. Okay, be warm and go be filled. That's compassion, but there's no action to go with that compassion. 1 John chapter 3 is very much along those lines. Verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. In deed and in truth. One of the great unsung theological heroes that we would consider in the secular world, but I believe he was a believer, was Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. I've got several books in my, in my office that's um, Theology According to Charlie Brown or Theology According to Peanuts. And it's interesting to go back and look at the comics and pull out the deep theological things that Schultz wrote about that are manifest in the lives of Charlie Brown and Linus and Lucy and Snoopy and Pigpen and all those guys like that. One I'm thinking about today is Charlie Brown and Linus are walking along, and they've got their winter coats on, and you can see it in the frame, and it's snowing, and they come upon Snoopy. And there is Snoopy, and he's shivering. You know, he's just a little beagle in the snow, and he's shivering in the snow, and and. They look over, Charlie looks over and says, Snoopy looks kind of cold, doesn't he? And Linus says, "Uh, yeah, maybe we better go over and comfort him. So they walk over him, and they pat him on the head, and Charlie Brown says, be of good cheer, Snoopy. And Linus says, yes, be of good cheer. And then they, they are shown walking off in their winter coats, and Snoopy's still there, shivering in the cold. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. It is a false compassion. Ah, I care about Snoopy. You know, he's cold. Let me go pat his head. Did I make him any warmer? No. Did I do anything for him? Did I extend myself in a work of Christian charity or compassion? No. I talked about it, but I didn't do anything about it. Big distinction there. James says, I'll show you the reality of my living faith by what I do with it. 
by what I do with it. And that puts the hypocrite on the spot immediately. Someone says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. What do we say? Typically, we say, well, when did you become a Christian? Maybe that should not be our first response. If somebody comes and tells us they're a Christian, maybe we should say, how have you demonstrated that in your life? What fruit have you borne because of your faith? How is your life different in your acts of compassion? How is your life different in all areas? There's one thing to profess that I'm a believer. There's another thing to say, here's fruit. Here is fruit. Remember the parable of the sower? Which is the real believer? Only the one that produces fruit. The first three don't produce any fruit. Only the last one produces fruit. Our last passage today, 2 Peter chapter 1. Jesus Christ gives us this great gift of salvation. I mean, it is something that we can't even fathom. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It is completely by grace. And here you are with a heart that has been changed, a life that has been changed. You just can't go back. We can't go back and sit in our theological, spiritual lazy boy and say, I am saved. And that is fantastic. He wants us out of the chair. He wants us out of the house. He wants us mixing and demonstrating that wonderful grace that he has placed in our hearts. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. We've been saved so that we might demonstrate the virtues of salvation. We have been saved so that our life may scream out these things. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. This is what we are saved to. We are saved from sin. We are saved to these virtues that we may demonstrate them. We don't demonstrate them in our own power. We demonstrate them through the power of the Spirit that dwells within the believer. Charles Spurgeon writes, If there be a faith, and there is, which leaves a man just what he was and permits him to indulge in sin, it is the faith of devils. Perhaps not so good as that, for the devils believe and tremble. Whereas these hypocrites profess to believe and yet dare to defy God and seem to have no fear of him whatsoever. So he comes down to it. If if we have true faith, we will abide in Christ. To abide in Christ means we will obey him. To obey him means we will demonstrate the virtues of those whose hearts are filled with grace and those virtues are demonstrated in our actions. The priorities we set in life what we do with those things that God has blessed us, 
how we treat those who come into our lives. Do we just pat Snoopy on the head and say, be of good cheer? Or do we get him a coat? Let's pray. Lord, this is, these are hard words, Lord. And frankly, I would rather not read this portion of Scripture. Because these things call, call us out of our comfort zone into a place where we have to either put up or shut up. We have to demonstrate the things of, of the gospel. We have to live them out. We have to extend ourselves beyond what we're comfortable with so that you might be seen. If we say it, we have to do it. But Lord, we know that the power within us that comes with the grace of Christ is greater than the power of this world. That we can walk in spirit-led boldness and do things that are so far beyond what we can think or imagine because of the power that is within us. Lord, today, help us examine each of our hearts first. Are we simply sayers or are we doers with what you have given us? Do we simply talk about the saving grace that we've experienced or do we demonstrate the saving grace? We know that the works don't save us, but we know that if your grace is real in our lives, then it will be demonstrated in what we do. Help us examine what areas of our lives, we're just talking about it and we're not doing it, that we would begin to demonstrate. And as a church, Lord, that we would examine all that we do, that we might go in a missional fashion and begin to demonstrate the things of the gospel of Christ. That we as a church might be known, not just as people who talk, but people who do. People who do the will of of our Heavenly Father, people who do the things of Christ, people who demonstrate the virtues of those whose lives have been changed by this wonderful gift of grace. Changed in the way we treat one another, changed in the way that we are compassionate so that our profession is clearly seen in our demonstration. Lord, come upon us that we might know that joy of walking in your will. This is not a burden that should be a crushing burden. This is a burden of joy. Because our hearts have been changed, we can go and do these things. We can live beyond ourselves through the work of the Spirit. When we do this, Lord, give us those those victories to know that, yes, I am walking in the way that I should, that I can know that joy that I can demonstrate the love that you've placed in my heart. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our hymn is number 71, Faith is the Victory. Let's stand as we sing number 71. Encamped along the hills of light, ye Christian soldiers ride. 